Right, we're just a few weeks away from our first ever live edition of the Race F1 podcast on February 12th. So far, we've got a great venue, King's Place in London, as part of Pod Live. We've got me to host, Scott Mitchell Malm to give lengthy answers, and a very special guest in Ted Kravitz. So, Ted, we've got to work out what we're going to talk about. What's there to look forward to in 2023 that we can get into in the live show, do you think? Let me start by telling you a story about Murray Walker. There you go. Good start. Um, He always used to say at the beginning of a season, you know, Formula One has an amazing ability of reinventing itself year by year. And I used to think it's a funny thing to say, but you know, the more I think about it, the more he's right. And even though we don't have new cars this year, right, slightly different with the race, bright height, blah, blah, new tyres, we do have so many other new things that are worth talking about. We've got new drivers, we've got rookies, it's more than one, a couple of rookies, and we've got new team bosses. That's what I'm all also looking forward to to seeing how that's all going to work and then of course we've got the small matter of the world championship will we be at the end of 2023 talking about max verstappen a three-time world champion there's loads of stuff to look forward to this season that's going to fill about 40 minutes of our 75 minutes scott can your song and dance routine fill the rest um it probably could if you would um if you would unshackle me and just let me you know have have full uh, creative license on it Part of it for me that I think we can get into really nicely is the subjects of rivalries, old and new, because I would like to think we're going to see some familiar fights in 2023, but we're also going to see some new ones as well. I'm really optimistic about that. So I think that's a good subject for us to get into. And obviously it won't just be us. Maybe we'll uh, have a few interesting insights from our audience as well. Well, this is great. The running order is coming together very, very well. I think we've got to have some kind of audience interaction. We'll definitely have a few questions. We'll have a few bits of feedback from the audience. Ted, do you know anyone who's handy with a microphone and who's good at doing a bit of broadcasting moving around? Because we could do with someone who could go out among the people. Well, what are we? February the 12th. Is it going to be warm enough for shorts? Yes, of course it'll be warm enough for shorts. I'll bring my pink shirt and my shorts on and I'll get down there with a the microphone. And of course, I think we should also hang around a bit at the end, say hello to a few people. Will there be the chance, Ted, to give a few autographs? Definitely. Does anyone actually ask for autographs anymore? But um, yeah, no, we can, uh, we can go and meet everybody and say hello. Yeah, it's going to be great. All part of Sport Pod Live, live podcast festival. We're there on February the 12th. That's a Sunday. Nice early afternoon slot. So if you're an F1 fan, it's just going to be a great event to come to. Hopefully we've got so much to talk about. We're going to struggle to fit it all in. So to get your tickets, head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. That's sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. Get your tickets and we will see you there. The Athletic. The race is on, and Formula One drivers have something to prove every time they get into the car. But in 2023, there will be some who have more to do than others, whether it's convincing everyone of their world championship credentials, securing their F1 future, or proving themselves as a team's leader. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to pick out the key drivers with work to do in the coming season are Mark Hughes and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Mark, let's quickly open up with the fact that we're going to talk today about drivers with something to prove, but we all know now that they've got one less race to prove it in, because although China was cancelled some time ago, there was the intent to replace it, and there's no replacement. Does that surprise you? Um, Not really. It came down to economics in the end. Um, I think Portugal was on standby to fill in, and they'd raised um, quite quite a good um, amount of money to host it. But, of course, that would have meant um, if it had been replaced, um, China would have um, had to have had a um, had to have got its money back um, because uh, it, it, as it stands, it's China that's cancelled it. Um, and uh, 
without a replacement. Um, yeah, it, in other words, uh, paying back China would have cost more than they would have got from uh, from Portugal. So, yeah, it just comes down to um, to money, as as most things do in Formula One. Always the way, and it does create a big gap relatively early in the season for a breather. But seeing as China was on my list to go to, it's not uh, not a terrible one to lose the the twenty fourth race. Although it would be nice to get back to China hopefully next year. But Scott, there was a little bit of talk about China trying to sneak the race back in. Was there anything to that? Yeah, I think to to a degree, as there was certainly an interest from China's point of view to um, actually try and get the race to happen after all just some easing of some of the restrictions i think the intention was to argue to f1 they i understand they wrote to f1 to sort of state the case the idea being that actually it wouldn't be as much of an inconvenience or an impossibility as f1 had made out initially but there were still some logistical problems around that i think there was still the concern about whether people would have to quarantine if they came back how many fans would be allowed and i think because f1's just gone almost Oh, well, it's, it's completely back to normal now, isn't it, after the pandemic? So I don't, I don't think they wanted to, to risk it. Um, and I'm sure there were some commercial considerations within that as well. So, yeah, we end up with this big gap now in, in April, um, which certainly welcome from a point of view of not cramming in yet another race. But it just, I think it person, personally, I think it exposes the imbalance of the calendar. And so I'm not, I'm not annoyed that they haven't replaced it. I'm still just annoyed with the balance of the calendar in general and the weird crisscrossing, the number of standalone events early on versus a run of like nine races in 11, 12 weeks or something like that. And it after that the, the follows this big gap. So it's just all, all a little bit over the place. Um, hopefully that can be improved. But I suppose that big gap in April is going to be good for some of the drivers if uh, that we're going to talk about in this podcast. If they've got something to prove and they have a slow start, maybe chance to reset will actually be a good thing, he said in an absolutely flawless podcast transition into what we were going to be talking about. That was an outstanding segue because that is indeed what we're talking about. And to be clear about what we're saying here, it's not about whether these drivers haven't proved anything because we're going to talk about some drivers who've achieved a lot already. But as I said in the introduction, there's always something to prove and various drivers through the grid maybe have a little bit more to show than others. And in each case, there's something very specific. It's about more than whether they're a good F1 driver. So we're going to pick our various choices and talk a little bit about what we expect and what we need to see from the drivers and also what wider circumstances need to exist in order for them to show what they need to show. Because sometimes if the equipment's not under you, you can't do that. So Scott, do you want to go with your first choice? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick uh, Charles Leclerc, which I appreciate is probably not the most um, not the most popular of drivers I could go for. I know he has very loyal following, and he did a very good job in 2022. I, I certainly wouldn't dispute that. the The thing that I the thing that I see with with, with Leclerc it, it, it's beyond the obvious and universal thing that any driver that hasn't won a championship or challenged for a championship has to prove, which is, can they do it? Obviously he has to do that, but I'm looking at it more specifically from a team leadership point of view, because I think, I think Carlos Sainz has probably pushed Leclerc harder than pretty much anybody outside of F1 would have imagined, because I just think that Carlos is generally a bit underrated. Um, and I think within that, there have been some skills that Sainz has brought to Ferrari that Leclerc was either lacking or maybe not um, deploying to the fullest possible extent. 
And I think one of those was leadership and being proactive. And we saw it a couple of times last year in high-profile scenarios like Monaco and Silverstone, where Sainz is capable of just being, I think, a bit pushier. Um, He's reading the race as he sees it. And if he feels that the team is either making the wrong call or he wants to make sure his voice is heard before they make the wrong call, he just does that, whether that is reading the, the conditions to decide to, to stay out on tyres, on his current tyres in Monaco, or you know, over, effectively overruling ruling the team by pushing back at Silverstone um, when it came to um, the strategy after the restart, which, which won him the race there. And I, I feel like Leclerc is perhaps a bit more passive. Um, there is something else I want to say within this, but before I go any further and ramble too much... Do you two get the? Did you two get the impression that Leclerc was sometimes guilty or capable of being a bit too passive in the Ferrari? I get the impression that he was, but it was more because he didn't have that natural command of everything that was going on that science does. It's just about a way of processing and thinking. Yeah, I agree with that, and um, they have a different way of, um, you know, analysing things, understanding things, and it's. Even when you talk to them immediately after a practice session, it, it, it's it's quite clear that it, it, um, Leclerc's got this fantastic feel for the car, but science has probably got a better understanding of the dynamics. And I think that also translates into the dynamics of a race as well. He's just a, a very, very bright guy. Um, that's not to say Charles lacking in intelligence, but I think he's all his racing life is relied so much on this fantastic talent that he has that he maybe hasn't ever needed to think as deeply as Carlos about some of the aspects of racing in Formula 1, which, is, as we all know, is, can get very complex and, and quite technically dense. Um, so, yes, I think it, – it's. It, I don't think it's a – a uh, thing in Charles's personality that he's reluctant reluctant to um, take the initiative. I think it's just sometimes it, it, he's not as quick in appreciating the the, the, the situation he's in as Carlos. Um, another example, in addition to the ones that Scott's just mentioned, was um, in uh, qualifying in Brazil Q3, uh, when of course uh, Leclerc was the only one out there on Inters, and they they'd wanted to put Inters on Carlos's car as well, and it was him that said, "No, absolutely not. Get me on, get me on slicks, and get me straight down the bottom of the pit lane as fast as you can." And he just wouldn't have it, and that you know turned out he was right. So, um, yeah, whether there, whether that's something that is just a, a trait, a permanent trait, or whether it's something that will be um, that. The, the will, ability that will develop with Charles as he gets more experience, I'm not sure. But um, I, either way, I think um, he's a, a quality enough driver that uh, ways can be found around that to still be um, a, absolutely a world championship contender if he has the car. There was actually a really good example last year, early in the season, the difference between them. And it shows that it's not just the way science does things and thinks about things is right and Leclerc is wrong. But when they were adapting to the new cars, Leclerc in testing, he was talking about changing the way he was braking, etc. And I imagine if you were to sit down with Leclerc and try and get him to break down all the reasons why he was doing that, he probably wouldn't be able to explain it in great detail at that time because it was all just being processed almost subconsciously through that field. People often come up with this false dichotomy about talent versus work. It's not about that. But Leclerc was able to hit upon that change style that was needed very, very quickly and work through it, whereas Science had to take a lot 
a lot longer to go through it. So it swings and roundabouts when it comes to these kinds of things. But again, with Leclerc, we're talking about a driver who needs to show he can be a champion. So they almost need to tick every single box in order to do that. So there is an interesting little comparison about how they process things, some better than others. The the kind of situational awareness perhaps comes naturally to science and he doesn't have to think it through unless so to Leclerc and vice versa for, for example, the driving style and sensing grip, traction sensing, that kind of thing. I honestly think there is also a, a character element within this. And I don't know I, I don't know if I would characterize it as, as as reluctance from Leclerc's side, but I feel like and I spoke to him about this at the end of last year quite a bit as well. He I feel like he doesn't want to. Um, I feel like he doesn't want to be as involved in, you know, commanding the situation as Signs does. And I think part of that is is nature and, and and how they they approach things. Because what Leclerc told me is that um, he wants to be able to trust the team. Basically, he he wants he doesn't. This comes back to that command of the situation. You know, he doesn't know as much as the team does in terms of what's going on. His logic is that the, the the team is making certain calls based on all the information they have, and at a certain point, he just has to trust that they're doing the best job possible. And his argument is almost that if they stopped making mistakes and just did a better job, he wouldn't have to pull rank, he wouldn't have to overrule them, and, and it shouldn't be something that he has to worry about. That said, he also admits that there are certain scenarios where he does need to be a bit, um, bit sharper, a bit more forceful, and... I wonder if that was sort of a natural education process that he had to go through last year. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you never know. We might not be able to see a tangible difference this year, but it'll be interesting to know how behind the scenes that works differently, if at all. The one sign that I saw of this potentially changing last year in season was something actually that the internet found quite funny. You, you know how in this... And this may have happened sooner, but I only noticed it in the second half of the season. Leclerc would often get radio messages about potential strategy changes from his engineer, and it would end with question, stressing that he was being asked a question. And I wondered, and I still wonder, if actually that's a sign of them bringing Leclerc into it a bit more because of what happened in the first half of the year. I wonder if that's their compromise, and it's basically... Charles, this is what we're thinking. What do you think about it? Rather than just, this is what we're doing, if you see what I mean. Well, it might also be a way to tackle the thing of if Leclerc wants to have complete trust in the team. If the team's a bit unsure or wants some driver input on some aspects, it's quite a good thing to have to say, right, we specifically want your opinion. So it will be interesting how that evolves this year. And it does underline in Leclerc's position that a lot of what he needs to prove is actually dependent on what's around him. It's dependent on how Ferrari operates, on how good the car is, on how good it is in race situations, because it all sort of points to can he be a, a championship contender? Well, he's half of that equation, the car's the other half. Actually, the car's a bit more of the equation in terms of whether it's possible, but then once you've got the car that can do it, it, it is very much down to the driver. Obviously, he's got that poor ratio of five wins to 18 pole positions, but I think that reflects the way Ferrari has been far, far, far more than any problems with Charles Leclerc's driving. So, yeah, that's what makes him such an interesting and evolving driver because if you can imagine a driver with the speed and ability and the qualities that Leclerc's got and you, you add 
a little bit of extra of that to it. He's going to be so, so formidable. So I'd say he's bound to win a championship in the future, but still needs to round off a few of those rough edges, as all drivers do. Mark, who would you like to talk about next? I'd like to start with uh, Sergio Perez, who's got quite a, a tricky challenge ahead of him because he really needs to be closer to Verstappen than he was last year. He averaged... Uh, 0.33 of a, a lap slower in qualifying than, than than Max last year, despite having been closely matched in the first part of the season. Um, that's actually a bigger gap than Daniel Ricciardo trailed Lando Norris by. Um, but because you know the Red Bull was a competitive car, it it, it didn't it, it didn't get highlighted so much that that, that struggle. Um, but we've already seen what can happen when um, when he's too close to the performance of, of Max Verstappen. And it's it, it's tricky because the, the the traits of car that they um, each perform in are, are quite different. And uh, it naturally, it, it, it followed Verstappen's preferences last year in, in its development. So one would assume that it would continue to go in that direction in 23. But, you know, if you're three and a bit tenths adrift is every chance there's going to be a couple of Mercedes and a couple of Ferraris in between you and your, your teammate. And that's, that's not something he can really afford um, in terms of, you know, his, his standing and his, his future prospects. You know, okay. He's, he signed a, a two year extension to his deal. So in theory, he's safe. Um, but his relationship with, Max and thereby with the team, it was a little bit tricky as we saw at the end of last year. Whatever happened at Monaco to trigger that, and there's some probably some damage repairing to be done there. But at the same time, he's he can't just be um, sort of cruising and bringing the points in. That's not what he's there for. Uh, he's there to be a proper backup that gets right in among the competition and fights it out, and. Uh, yeah, I'd say at three and a bit tenths off your teammate, you're not going to be able to do a very good job of that. There's also the ghost of Red Bull season's past there in the form of Daniel Ricciardo as a reserve driver. So he'll want to be proving that he's capable of coming in. Now, Ricciardo's got quite a lot of other challenges before he can be a credible threat for that seat. But he is there and it's just another little dimension to that. But he is strange, isn't he, Perez Scott? Because there was there were patches of last season where Perez was doing a very good job kind of the first part and towards the back end, coming back again. So he can deliver at the level that they need. It's just doing it over a season against a driver as preternaturally skilled as Max Verstappen is always going to be difficult. And he needs to get to a sky-high level even to be that strong support act. Uh, yeah, but I, I would put the um, emphasis on where Perez needs to improve as um, a bit more a bit more towards proving that he can be that number two when they've got a sustained year-long fight. Because that's the thing that I see as um, quite a big question mark over him. Um, the second half of last year, he did do, he did, did definitely do a better job um, after that mid-season slump. But I would also say that by that point, obviously the Ferrari challenge had largely faded in, especially in races, um, so the Red Bull advantage was was bigger, hence Verstappen's incredible form. Um, and while there was a bit more of the Mercedes threat, um, that was obviously a little bit sort of hit and miss. 
So, whereas last year Verstappen had a really serene run to the driver's title and Perez contributed to Red Bull dominating the Constructors' Championship, we haven't seen him be a season-long support act in a really tough fight. And that's not necessarily his own fault because obviously the the really big fight with Mercedes in 21 came in Perez's first year with a tricky car and, and he, I think it was fair that he, it took him some time to get on top of that. And he did ultimately play a mega supporting role in, in Abu Dhabi, although perhaps not in the way he would ideally like to have. Um, so I think I would like to... I, I think he needs to prove this year that if Red Bull faces a very, very stern challenge, that he can be that that really effective wingman 90% of the season. I don't think you necessarily need it from him at 23 races because personally, I think if someone is in that wingman role to a Verstappen or like Bottas was to Lewis Hamilton, you're there because you're not quite going to be mega over a full season, if that makes sense. So, so he wouldn't be the wingman if he could do it at all 23 races, if you see what I mean. He, he, he'd be the leading man. But I still think, I just think we just need to see that from him over the majority of the season rather than, let's generously say, half of the season last year. Yeah, and of course, we're talking tiny differences, the difference between a great driver and a very, very good one. I know I always say this, but F1 history is full of very good drivers who look ordinary compared to absolute superstars. And that's the real challenge that Perez faces and being able to get to uh, a decent level to to do a decent job. But he's done it in fits and starts and he's won four Grand Prix. He's got plenty of podium finishes. So he's he's got a, a good chance. But just Mark, to come back to what you mentioned, obviously he's got the contract to next year. Do you think in a scenario where it's similar performance level to last year, let's say hypothetically Daniel Ricciardo isn't considered an option, can you see anyone Red Bull might go for to try and replace Perez? Or do you think he's at least got pseudo-security from that perspective? I think he's relatively secure. I, don't, I think it would have to be quite a bad performance to start um, thinking of buying buying him out of a the second year of his contract, for example. Um, I don't think he's um, in danger of sinking to that level but if he does it's still in the background I you know I, I can still see Alex Albon hovering about I, I'm not convinced that we've seen the last of him in a Red Bull yeah he's no longer on Red Bull's books in any way but yeah he was very well liked by that team and's done a good job at Williams so I guess this really for Perez is about 2025 because Red Bull are going to want to decide what lineup they've got in 25. I would say by early in the 24 season, ideally, at the latest, and the die might well be cast this year. Let's move on now, Scott, to your second choice. Who are you putting under the spotlight? I'm going to go from, uh, with all due respect, the front of the grid to what I suspect will be more of the back of the grid and pick uh, Nico Hülkenberg. Um, I perhaps could have phrased that as, I'm going to go for a driver still young and still quite early in their F1 career to someone at the, the tail end of it. Um I think uh, Hulkenberg has quite a bit to prove just to make just to make it clear that it was definitely worth Hass's while bringing him out of uh, not retirement like an an enforced extended sabbatical. Um, Hulkenberg at his peak is a, is a very good driver for a team of uh, Hass's level. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't think he needs to prove himself in the sense of oh we need him to, to finally get that podium that's eluded him his entire career or anything like that he doesn't need to be scoring pole position into Lagos that that kind of thing but Haas 
jettisoned a young, decent driver in Mick Schumacher to bring someone in who hasn't raced full-time in F1 since 2019. And there are inevitably question marks about in terms of their focus and, and, and commitment. And especially with Haas's potential to have incredibly up-and-down seasons, how Hulkenberg handles that variance, I think, is going to be quite significant, especially if he is to continue in F1 beyond just a one-year comeback this year. So there, there are just... I, I, I understand the Haas logic to it. I believe Gunter Steiner when he says that they've factored in the most important things, which is can he still be quick? Can he still be committed? Does he want to be here? I get all that. But I said this at the end of last year. The big question mark is how long that is maintained when the reality of being in the F1 midfield bites. And I still think that's what Hulkenberg needs to prove this year. is Was he worth it? And will he still want to be around if we get six races into the year and things aren't looking that good? It's very interesting for Hulkenberg personally, isn't it? Because I'm not sure how much pressure he'll feel. He's a 35-year-old. This is almost a bonus. I won't say he was take it or leave it for Formula One, but... I don't think if he hadn't got a full-time drive again, it would have eaten away at him for the rest of his life. So this is almost a a bonus. He's got other things going on. So if it is only a one-season appointment, I don't think he'll see that as a disaster. And sometimes, Mark, when you see drivers in that situation, it can pay off quite well for them. could also argue Hülkenberg, he's got something like 97 points finishes in Formula 1. So he's a proven, pretty consistent point scorer. We know he's perhaps not, well, he certainly hasn't evolved to be the driver that maybe he looked like he could become during those Mercurial Junior Formula days. But while Scott's absolutely right, there are things he needs to prove in terms of what decision has made, almost on a personal basis, that probably won't worry him so much, will it? I think you're probably right. I think also there's going to be that... Just that nice feeling of being back, and Kevin Magnussen talked about that um, last year as well. Just he got this reprieve that he wasn't expecting, and he said it was just so enjoyable to to, to be back there, and he'd enjoyed it in a way he hadn't done first time around. Um, so yeah, there's that aspect of it, and sometimes that can release you know the, the good performances. That relaxed demeanor can unlock performances that that. that maybe aren't accessible when the, the, the driver is more under the spotlight. Um, I think it'll be interesting if we if we we get a few wet races because he's always been absolutely dynamite in the wet. Um, he has a way of feeling the car that's just perfectly suited to, to those sort of conditions. Um, he's got very, you know, high level of experience and, and would probably – be able to give the team a bit more direction than than Mick could. So, I, yeah, I think he'll be uh, an asset to the team. But the question is, just will we ever see a glimpse of the of the driver he looked like he could have been, um, which was uh, something a bit different. He can be great on slicks in the wet as well. He's great at keeping that tire temperature and sensing that grip, as you say. So, I'd like to see him in those sorts of conditions. But Scott, just to Kind of come back to the counterpoint I almost made. Do you think it's fair to say that almost that puts more pressure on that team decision almost? Because it might not be much skin off Hulkenberg's nose if he ends up marking time for half a season if it's not quite working out because he's still, I imagine, being paid reasonably well. It's all a nice bonus for him. So is it more about where that kind of pressure to uh, to prove something lies with the team rather than the driver? Um, possibly, but I, I, I still think it, I still think it's more on, more on Hulk's side because, um, 
it it, dep- it depends how he wants to be viewed. I, I'm sure he doesn't really care about how he's perceived, but ultimately, he's a professional and he's competing in an elite sport. Uh, I, I don't see why it would be acceptable for him after six or seven races, if things start to go badly, for him to 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 look like he's phoning it in or to you know to be difficult or or, or anything like that. He he has to prove that he still deserves a place on the grid. That, that, that's what sport is. It's a measure of competition between competitors, whether it's drivers and, and teams. And I'm not saying that Hulkenberg will fall short of that, far from it. But when he hasn't been around for this long, when he's come in at, let's face it, while Schumacher was obviously not nailed on in any way to keep that seat, I don't think it was a total no-brainer to get rid of him. So you've got that fact, that factor as well, and you're coming into a team that does have this tendency to have oscillations in their performance level. I I think it's completely legit, fair to say that he needs to prove that he can handle that, deal with it properly, and have a successful season. Well, there's certainly plenty on the outside who questioned that decision. So from that perspective, certainly there'll be a lot of people watching his performance closely, and yeah it'll be tied up in the performance of the team as well. I imagine potentially the stronger the Haas is, the, the the more likely it is to go well personally for Hulkenberg as well. So yeah, interesting one to watch. Mark, who would you like to pick up next? I'm going to go for a guy that has been absolutely outstanding in everything he's ever done in his junior career and is making his F1 debut. That's Oscar Piastri. And he has the um, the momentum of someone that's uh, going all the way to the top. He's been absolutely brilliant in everything he's done. And he now comes in after a, a bit of uh, controversy about his contract and who he was signed to and not signed to, to McLaren, where he is up against um, someone who is absolutely at the top of his game in Lando Norris and would almost certainly be fighting for the world championship if he had a car capable of it. And so all of a sudden, the perception, if you can't match Lando, is um, is in danger of um, sort of putting a bit of a, putting a, bit of a break on that uh, career momentum he's had up until that point. Uh, he, it's almost like he won't just be judged on how quickly he assimilates to the demands of F1, but how quickly he can be given somebody of that level some decent internal competition. And that's that's a massive ask. And if he can manage it, um, it would, even if he can, you know, be, you turn up at, at, a, at a given race weekend and you, you're, he, he, he might, he might be able to challenge Lando. Um, if, if he can do that consistently, that would be a hell of an achievement. Um, but it's by no means a given. Can I can I come in on this with something that, and this isn't to counter anything Mark said, but with something that Piastri absolutely doesn't have to prove in 2023? Yes, you can. Yes, go ahead. Ex- excellent. Okay, <laughs> so the thing permission. that I, I, I was, it was it was a sincere question. So I was I was hoping I was hoping for a response. Um, the the thing the the bit about the Piastri narrative that I've really just not been a fan of for, for months now is this idea that he was um obviously uh, we talked about it quite a lot last year um in any way 
underhand or the, or the villain of of the piece in terms of you know turning his back on Alpine to to join McLaren. I I I I really dislike the notion that he has something to prove that you know you know that he's actually um he's actually a decent guy or or he's um you know he is he is actually loyal he's not nefarious or 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 anything like this because there's part of the expectation on him this year and the scrutiny on him this year will be because of the infamy that he achieved before ever even doing so much as a friday practice session in 2022 um and I, I I feel like there's an unfair weight of expectation on him in, in, in that regard. Um, obviously, what he and the team around him did was aggressive in terms of manoeuvring him into the best and most competitive position that they saw possible. And Piastri played along to that. He you know he did what was asked of him. He had to do things like send that tweet out last year. But all he needs to do this year is just prove on track that he is a very good high quality driver that was worth McLaren trying to get hold of that that's sort of where it stops it's this slight obsession some people have with latching on to the the circumstances of last year and the perceived role that Piastri played in it that I feel like if anyone is still hanging on to that they kind of just need to let go it's just this I don't know I don't really understand it but it's just this sort of slightly weird obsession with that that personal element when I don't really see him as having done anything wrong to get where he is. Well, there'll be plenty of people hoping he'll fail because of that, who do buy into that narrative, but I agree with you. It's it's just not accurate. And I think Alpine showed showed some real questions about the way that organisation operates and the way it perceives staff, etc., in some of the public things they said as well. So that that's something that... Uh, Alpine needs to be very, very well aware of because really, if anyone was the villain, they were, and I'm not even sure it was necessarily villain. They were the ones who, through a series of errors, meant that Piastri was free. Well, that's probably the that's probably the best way for me to put what what I'm trying to say. Like the fact is, Piastri had his integrity called into question by his then boss in in, in Otmar Zafnauer and other members of the the Alpine hierarchy, including Lauren Rossi. I think for your for your integrity to be questioned before you even came come into Formula One is pretty outrageous, especially when you haven't done anything lacking in integrity, really. Um, and I think that has fueled this narrative. The people that do buy into that, or the people that feel that Ricardo was messed around because of what Piastri and his associates did, that there is this feeling, I think, from some people that his integrity isn't. 100% known and proven uh, and I just don't think that's the case so that that's why I just wanted to sort of stress something he doesn't have to prove in 23. Yeah well the positive thing is as Mark said it's down to him in the car to prove that that's irrelevant almost if he performs well people will rapidly forget about it and he'll just go back to being a, a rising star huge amount of promise as he showed in the junior formula if he struggles then I think people will reach for these narratives more but I think these are completely separate he now stands or falls in Formula One as everyone does, based on what he does with the machinery he's got in difficult circumstances in a congested part of the F1 field against a very, very good teammate. So that's difficult enough and stuff he can be judged on without worrying about any of the past stuff. If I may throw in, I'm not quite in the rotation of choosing people, but I would like to throw somebody in now because I've been giving them a bit of consideration recently in Yuki Sonoda. Now, it's fairly obvious why Sonoda might be 
someone who's a bit under pressure and has something to prove. But I think he's a really interesting case because he's shown in fits and starts, he can be very, very, very quick. He's turned some very, very good qualifying laps at times. There have been times when he's been quicker than Gasly. Overall, last year, Gasly was the better Alpha Tauri driver. But Sonoda on pace is impressive if he can join those dots of performance together. He's got some race day improvements, tyre management, racecraft, etc. He needs to improve on. He ended up last year with a body of work. For example, when I looked at my driver ratings for him as the season, he came out with a pretty low average. But I would actually argue he almost had a better season than that because his inconsistency meant that there were very few kind of complete weekends. And that's what my rating system tends to prize. So he's a really fascinating case because I think Tsunoda is a driver who could absolutely go either way this year. In 12 months' time, we could be talking about him again as a driver who might just be able to show he's capable of being a Red Bull driver in the future. I think that ability is in there. But we could also be talking about him as a driver of the past. If he can't get that focus, keep it all together, cut back on the mistakes, which he did reduce last year. So I think he, perhaps of all drivers, has the biggest span of potential outcomes, which I think makes him fascinating to follow. And I really hope it comes together because there's a proper driver in there and I just hope that he can tie it together. Especially as when you can conceivably view him as a driver who's bored, he's quite close to being in a lose-lose situation this year with who his teammate is. You know, if he beats Nick DeVries, no one's going to care. Not, not really, the sort of broad perception of Sonoda is not going to be enhanced massively by beating a rookie who is in his late 20s, who a lot of people haven't been that fussed about not getting to Formula One. And and I'm not saying this is my opinion, but I think this is a fair enough reflection of how a lot of people see someone like De Vries coming in. It's a little bit like when Brendan Hartley came into Formula One. You know, no one, I think no one's sensible doubts that there's a very decent driver there and capable of being a very good Grand Prix driver, but that, that external perception doesn't quite reflect that. So if he beats De Vries to a greater or lesser extent, who cares? If he loses to De Vries, I think it's damning. I think that that if he gets beaten by, by De Vries, I think, I think it's going to look terribly on him as the incumbent driver, as an up-and-comer, losing to someone again without that stellar reputation. I think that's really, really bad. The only... The only outcome there is Sonoda has to demolish De Vries this year. He has, I think, he has to have a clear advantage over him in qualifying. I'm not saying beat. I'm not saying whitewash him in qualifying and then oh, with an average win of three tenths or something like that. But I think he has to have a half a tenth or a tenth on De Vries, and I think he has to out qualify more often than often than not. And I think when it comes to the the, the races, I think De Vries will have moments where he is a class act. But Sonoda needs to match De Vries's peaks, if not better them, and certainly needs to be more consistent than De Vries. He has to establish himself as the team leader this year. And I think that is exaggerated by who his teammate is. So there is, you're right, it's worth talking about Sonoda because there is a lot to prove on that side. He's got a, as Ed was saying, he's got a lot um, to tidy up and to become more complete and more consistent and that's not it's not just Red Bull and Helmut Marker who's going to be looking at that it's also Honda because if he doesn't do it you know the 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 Honda F2 driver Yumi Iwasa is, is the next in line so it's not as though they're going to stick necessarily stick with them through thick and thin 
he he really does have to perform this year. And um, yeah, I think the verdict's out, the, the verdict's still out on on whether he has it in him, whether he just came into Formula One a little bit undercooked, and we're now now he's building up the experience. He will become the driver he looked he, that he was capable of being, or whether it's just that's how he is. He's a little bit hot and cold. We you know there's been pl- plenty of of drivers like that, even with a lot of experience be- uh, under their belts. So yeah. Uh, you're right. It's going to be interesting to watch that one. Yeah, and it, in a third season, you've had enough time to build up some experience to have the ups and downs. You need to be stringing it together at a reasonably consistent level. Yes, there's still headroom to get better after that. But if you're fortunate enough to last three years, the third season is the one where you need to be doing that. And AlphaTauri, Red Bull, Toros, I call it what you will, have always shown in the past that they're willing to move on if they think they're not seeing that improvement. I don't think anyone in the team really knows which way it's going to go as well. That's why it's so tantalising, because it could go so well or it could go pretty badly. But good luck to him, because when things go well for Sonoda, he can be a very, very classy driver. He knows what he needs to do. Yes, he's a very noisy driver over the radio, etc. He's famous for that. But outside of the car, he's calmer, more analytical. If he can hold that focus manage those race stints better, tackle the weaknesses, try and harness that speed he's got, then, yeah, there's definitely a driver in there. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Let's move on now to your third choice, Scott. Who are you going for? Uh, I have to be really careful with this one uh, because it's Lewis Hamilton and I have to be statistically the most successful Formula One driver ever rated by many as the greatest of all time unquestionably one of the few greats what's he got left to prove Scott no exactly so I have to be careful with the context because even the context I think some people will certainly see that this is shaky grounds and you're right he's a he started 310 Grand Prix Uh, he's won 103 of them he's got seven world championships Uh, many would argue he should have an eighth um in terms of results, achievements, anything like that, he has nothing to prove. I, I, I would not argue that in the slightest. And along with the, the, the rest of you, uh, I viewed him as actually on edge being slightly better than George Russell in 2022, despite Russell beating him in the championship. So it's not, I, I wouldn't want to frame this as, oh, he's got to show that he can come back against Russell and, and not just be knocked off his perch and then slip away. Not, not, nothing like that. Um, what I think Hamilton needs to prove this year is that having had that disappointment last year as a whole, not not specifically his performances, but just Mercedes and everything that went around that, 
I think because there is this, whether it's the minority or the majority, there is a perception that Hamilton was bested by Russell last year and was shown to not be as good as his stats make him appear to be that clearly that just showed he just had this car advantage all of this time and and all of the usual nonsense that you hear through Hamilton's run of success but just exaggerated by a pretty big factor because he was then beaten by by a new teammate that wasn't someone as subservient as Valtteri Bottas was so the fact is whether they're just being cynical or whatever, that there is that narrative around him. So this year is an opportunity to prove that that is just absolutely nonsense. And I think he will, because I see no sign of the motivation being dimmed. I see no sign of the ability being dimmed. And I also see no sign that he can't rise to the occasion, because after that difficult first third of last year, he came back really strong through the rest of 2022. So... That's why I'm being a bit careful with how I phrase it, because I think it is worth discussing because of these thoughts and suggestions that always accompany Hamilton, but accompany him in particular because of the circumstances of 2022. Personally, do I think he has anything to prove in 23? No. But to a certain percentage of people that be watching F1, yes, he, he does, because he was beaten last year. He needs to prove that he can undo that reassert himself over over Russell this year and, and and there will be some perception that that is the case for him this year. Well, and ultimately, there's still the need for a resolution to the Hamilton versus Verstappen story. I'm not talking about because of the way 2021 went, but purely in terms of you've got the established megastar in Lewis Hamilton. Verstappen's come in, won two world championships. He's now right up there delivering the performances we've long expected he would do. Verstappen's not being talked about as someone under pressure because over the past couple of years he's proved pretty much everything. But there is, Mark, the kind of need for this this storyline, which is going to define in some ways the way that the latter part of Lewis Hamilton's career is seen, plays out. Can he get that one more title? And I think that one more title is the important one because it would be the eighth. Get one over, say, Verstappen in a battle, avenge 2021 or whatever, and and just show that, yeah, late in my career, I can still go toe-to-toe with this guy and beat him, and then he can retire, having said, yeah, I was still at the top uh, when I finished. Yeah, you'd see certain parallels at this stage of Hamilton's career with um, the late first career of Michael Schumacher and when he was coming under threat from Fernando Alonso, and he had an uncompetitive car in 2005, and Alonso blitzed the championship, and went round Michael's outside at 130R and everyone's saying, that's it, you know, Alonso's the top guy now, no question. But then give him a competitive car in 2006 and he was right back there again. And, you, you know, I would say probably on balance he was slightly quicker than Alonso that year, but the reliability wasn't there. So the, I think just because that's the way the narrative is ultimate, will ultimately go, the, the younger guy will prevail ultimately, um, it doesn't mean it has to happen this season or next season. And it, it's, uh, you know, a lot is obviously going to be down to just how competitive a car Mercedes can give them. But the other complicating factor is that it's, it's, not, um, it's not just circumstantial that George Russell was um, very competitive alongside him. That's, that's just the level that George Russell's at, I'd say. It's not just that he's more, so, he's less subservient than Valtteri Bottas. He's, he's he's faster than Valtteri Bottas too. And I think had you put 
this George Russell alongside Lewis Hamill at any stage in Lewis's career or alongside anybody, he would have been very, very competitive with them. Just as Lewis was competitive in his rookie year with uh, Fernando Alonso, I think George Russell is that calibre caliber of driver and it's not a given that Lewis will beat George at every single weekend. Um, so he's got internal competition as well, uh, which Max hasn't really. And so that might fuel that perception of people who would prefer the narrative that uh, Lewis's uh, success is all down to his car and not him um, to, to be the true one. But, it, of course, it's <laughs> it's never as simple as that and it's, uh, it's a, a nonsensical position to take, really. But, that, as Scott says, that won't stop the perception um, from some people that he does have something to prove. Uh, so, yeah, short of him blitzing... Max Verstappen and with an equal car, um, which I, I, you know, I think is not going to happen. I think they're, they're far too evenly matched for that. Um, that narrative will always be there for those who want it to be there. I think it's to Hamilton's credit as well that he's willing to carry on and push on. Obviously, there's talk of a new new two year deal that'll keep him in F1 till what the end of 2025 happening as well. The fact he's willing to to keep on fighting, take on these multiple challenges of Verstappen, of Russell, I think it is to his credit. And it'll make the next few years of Formula One, assuming he does carry on next year, all the better for it. It's great that this generational battle with him and Verstappen isn't just going to flare up briefly. It's a, it's going to be a proper fleshed out battle in multiple stages, which is very, very uh, encouraging. Mark, who would you like to go for next? Uh, Pierre Gasly I would like to go for next because he had a disappointing season at AlphaTauri last year. Very much much patchier than we'd seen him the previous couple of years. And um, certainly his relationship with the team disintegrated a bit and he got frustrated. They didn't give him a good car and that seemed to, you know, bring him down a bit. And he now goes into his old rival Esteban Ocon's team where Ocon is the incumbent, knows the team very well, uh, compared very very well to Fernando Alonso last year, was, you know, Alonso was uh, ultimately a little bit quicker and would always be able to bang in the times immediately. It took Ocon sometimes a couple of days to get to that level, but he ultimately usually did. That's uh, that's a pretty high bar to go in against in a, in a new team. And, you know, I think his, his status as a, a future star that, you know, he, he did look when he, he was winning that race for... Uh, Alpha Tari, or was it was was it still Tari? no? It was Alpha Tari when he won in Monza, wasn't it? Um, that status when he when he won the Italian Grand Prix a couple of years ago as you know a mega star in the making. I don't think that's secure anymore, and I think he really needs to establish himself, and he have he will have to put up a very very convincing display alongside Ocon to do that. It's an interesting one because you could reframe a lot of what you've said there and say, actually, it's Ocon that's got a lot to prove as well against the incomer now that Alonso's gone, which is what makes that Alpine battle so fascinating. Plus, there's the personal history between those two as well. But Gasly is an interesting one because there are areas where we know he's made progress since his Red Bull days. The AlphaTauri team has said that he's much better now in terms of of trying to work out how to approach the setup compromises and that kind of thing. He got a little bit swallowed up almost by data in the Red Bull period, not because he wasn't willing to, but because he was always a driver that spent plenty of time going through everything. But he almost got so 
obsessed with small details that he just ended up chasing his tail on setup on everything during that Red Bull phase. And he has emerged as a driver who's capable of doing that much better with uh, AlphaTauri over the past few years. And it's interesting because he's he's almost the first driver that that team has been able to finish the job with in terms of fully developing or preparing them because normally they're promoted and lost or ditched and lost before they're with the team for that long. So that makes Gasly quite an interesting one. Are you still half expecting a Gasly-Ocon collision early on, Scott, and a fallout? <laughs> Do you think that's the, yeah. the, big, yeah. uh, the big spanner that could be thrown in the works? Nothing's changed. <laughs> so that is still that is still what I would expect. Um, Gasly's going into his Carlos Sainz at McLaren season, isn't he? It's a similar kind of situation to, to, to be in. Not not identical. They they haven't followed the exact career trajectories. But in terms of that um that element that you were talking about there, Ed, with really taking your development as far as you can with the the sister Red Bull team, you know, was was signs before then the sort of like longest serving junior team driver in terms of how long he stuck around for? I think he was, yes. He was cer- or he was certainly tracking towards it, wasn't he? Because he de- he de- he desperately wanted to get out. He he knew that. Yeah, he was no longer a, a junior driver in terms of status, but he was still on the junior team, and it's the same with Gasly. Yeah, because he knew that if he hadn't manoeuvred his move to Renault, he was tra- tracking for a fourth year at Toro Rosso, wasn't he? Um, because 2017 would have been his third season, I I, I think. Yeah, third season. Um, Gasly obviously did end up with that extended spell at Toro Rosso Alpha Tauri because of the career circumstances around the demotion from Red Bull. But the point is that they both they both found that natural ceiling that you have at that second team. It just does. It can't test you or or or, or develop you in the way that move into a more an, an upper midfield team would. So Alpine for Gasly is actually in pretty similar position to what McLaren was in for, for Sainz. Um, Sainz was part of that early McLaren rejig. They, they'd ended the previous season really poorly, whereas obviously Gasly's going into an Alpine team that's on the up. But in terms of the position in the midfield, they, in terms of the championship-wise, that they, they are, you know, they're established top 10. They've got huge resources, huge potential. If it goes well it revitalizes the driver's career. We saw that with Sainz. He went there, he proved he was so much more than just a junior driver, so much more than just another member of the F1 midfield. He was capable of absolutely starring in that midfield, being at the right at the front of it and looking like one of those drivers that you could then pluck out of that team and put back in and put in a top car. Gasly Gasly needs to show that that's where he is now as well. He is going from, he had that bit, a little bit of Red Bull, it came too soon. Now he's got the opportunity to prove I'm not just a sort of, um, sort of clutch moment operator where I get a sudden opportunity to, to nail it and I nail it, but otherwise I'm just sort of like going through the motions. He, at Alpine, he should, unless they really botch the 2023 car have the opportunity to establish himself as F1's best of the rest. And if he can do that, then it's going to be huge for his career because, okay, he might, it might be that Alpine's his only option long-term, but he can really establish himself as the face of this team. He can put one over on Ocon and make sure that he's the number one driver in the, in the medium to, to, to long-term. So there, there is a lot riding on this season for him. And he's a driver. It'd be great to see, 
do that simply because he is great to watch when he's happy with the car, when it's got that stability that he wants, when it's got the turn in that he wants. He can be so quick. He's turned in some very special qualifying laps on and off. There was a great one at Imola a few years ago, and he's right on the edge, just really, really impressive. That onboard's kind of lodged in my mind. So at his best, he can be really, really good. I think there's a question about how wide his operating window is. So that's something he probably has to prove a little bit at Alpine, but he is in a really interesting position because whereas when he was promoted to Red Bull, it was very, very early. He's had much more time now with the Red Bull junior team to learn. He's he's led that team for several years now. He's had the win. He's had plenty of top five runs. So he's really shown what he can do. And I think I, I'm slightly suspicious about whether the Gasly-Ocon partnership will 100% work for Alpine, but there is an upside in Gasly and it'd be interesting to see how he goes and who prevails in that particular battle. I should say, inevitably, we could have talked about all 20 drivers in this, but we wanted to kind of zero in on a few others. But is there anyone anybody thinks we've missed that you can raise question marks about just about any of them? Anyone worth a mention? I guess Sainz. Um, you could make a case that Sainz has to more consistently compete with Leclerc. He's, he's, he's shown he's, he's fully capable of competing with him, but not every weekend as a given. So, yeah. I think another obvious one near the front of the grid is George Russell. If Mercedes has the the potential in the 2023 car to be a regular contender for wins and championships, Russell will need to make that step and and show that he can. The only reason I didn't pick him for this one is that we ended up going into where Russell needs to improve and what he needs to improve on our in-depth George Russell podcast um, quite recently. So it would have felt like going over old ground, but... Obviously, I think people should listen to that because I think it's a good podcast anyway. But just my main summary of what he needs to prove for this year would be, I think he just needs to prove he has a bit more sort of discipline and dependency when um, when he's racing wheel to wheel because we saw some amazing peaks on that front last year. I'm thinking in particular the fights with Verstappen in Spain and in Brazil and even Hamilton in, in Miami. But then we also saw some real blunders, lapses in judgment, whatever it was. Um, that, that that cost him quite dearly. So uh, every driver goes through that. He just needs to prove that the peaks are actually reflective of where his ability is and turn that into a much more of the the, the norm rather rather than just the high point. Another one we've touched on before as well is Lance Stroll at Aston Martin up against Fernando Alonso. That's the most dependable, consistent, relentless benchmark he's been up against in a Formula One team. So there'll be some questions asked if he's left behind there. So plenty to prove in terms of his not necessarily fundamental ability, but also the effort level he's willing to put in and and how he can string it all together. Did we did we cover Kevin Magnussen at all in passing when we were talking about Hulk? Only very briefly. I think I think he's someone as well because one of the things that Hulk has been brought in to do is light a fire up Magnussen's backside, and there is I think a perception within the Haas hierarchy that Magnussen, Magnussen drove down to Schumacher's level a little bit last year. So if Hulkenberg does arrive and do a great job, then it, the onus will be on Magnussen to, to to rise to that and and be as capable, if not more capable. Yeah, Magnussen does sometimes go missing when the car's not going so well. I think he's got a lot of ability and he does put together some really good weekends, but he does, yeah, sometimes disappear. It's really interesting because obviously there's loads of other people, Logan Sargent, 
rookie Nick De Vries, who we briefly mentioned in their first four seasons, have to prove something. It's funny, actually. I think about the only driver I look at and think there's almost nothing to prove. Because even with Verstappen, you could say he's got to prove that he can get it right in wheel-to-wheel battle consistently with Hamilton. Although some people also say and vice versa, but I'm particularly thinking of that Interlagos clash that they had. But probably about the only driver is almost Lando Norris. Because even though he's got <laughs> Piastri to see off, we know he's going to be in a McLaren that's probably going to finish in minor points positions an enormous amount this year. And he, he's kind of ticked all the boxes he can uh, at McLaren. So I'd say he's almost right at the bottom of the list for, for things to prove because he's faced the challenges that are in front of him. I would say Fernando Alonso as well. Um, I, I just, uh, they, and it might sound hypocritical because obviously I flagged Hamilton, but there, there just isn't this um, agenda or narrative around Alonso in the way that there is one around Hamilton, you know, because of that period of dominance, Hamilton basically goes into every season needing to prove to somebody that he is actually as good as his numbers make him look. Whereas Alonso, we've accepted for 12 years now or more that you know success and numbers will never define Fernando Alonso's career other than in the bad way. And he just, he just continues to operate at a really, really high level. He's dismissed any notion that he might come back a, a lesser version of himself. So I, I just don't see anything on Alonso's side that to disprove whether to himself or to any narrative that exists in the public domain, whether it's fictional or legitimate. Well, I think Alonso's story is almost, he's got to, for some reason, he's so good, he's achieved so much. Everybody knows pretty much how good he is. And yet he still loves to underline it, doesn't it? So there's almost something in his psychology that needs to demonstrate that, whether it's proving to himself almost. Maybe his self-confidence isn't as rock solid as it looks, but th- there's something in his psychology that means there is something to prove. But it's it's almost unique in the grid in terms of how it, it works. He's proving it to some other audience that everyone else doesn't seem to have, probably one that's just deeply personal to him. Maybe if the, um, if the sort of approach to this podcast was drivers who think they have the most to prove but don't maybe Alonso would have been top of one of our lists for that (laughs) well I think Alonso would probably I could probably at different times argue he's got the most to prove in the least because he is a very interesting character but certainly he's going to be great to watch this year whatever happens because he's always great to watch and I'm pleased Alonso is going to be on the grid for at least another few years because even in his 40s, he's still a formidable competitor. And wouldn't it be great if at some point Aston Martin can give him a race-winning car? Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, Malm and Mark Hughes, for your insight. We mentioned pretty much every driver there. I'm sure there'll be some that people are annoyed we haven't talked about, but there's only so much time and we will get to them later in the season. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Have a listen to our other podcasts. Bring back V10s is well worth a listen. We're in our seventh season there, telling classic F1 stories. Our IndyCar podcast, Formula E, the season's started there. And also check out our YouTube channel. Not only our longer videos, but also our shorts. Well, launch season is closing very rapidly. We've still got plenty to talk about, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.